All right, let's go before the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you again for this time that you've granted us to hear from your word, to hear from you, from your Holy Spirit, the testimony of Christ, the testimony of our salvation, the understanding of law and how it relates to us as sinners, that we may glory and see what Christ has done for us. I pray for faithfulness and clarity and the same for your people to hear faithfully and clearly what you alone are saying. We thank you for gathering us this morning. We pray for those who are listening from afar. May you bless their ears also. We honor you, glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, good people, we are in Romans 7 again. Romans 7, and good morning one and all, everyone who is joining us. I pray the Lord will bless you. And don't come and listen for 15 minutes and be gone, because that's not helpful at all. <laughs> you have to hear all the arguments. We have to hear how these things are connected together. We don't do a drive-by type teaching. You need to invest the time. Romans 7, 13 to 20 will be our verses for consideration. And this is from the New King James. Apostle Paul but the Holy Spirit recorded for us and said, Has then what is good become death to me? I have to record something, sorry. i begin again in Romans 7 because I forgot to record. Romans 7, 13 to 20 again. Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good. So that sin, through the commandment, might become exceedingly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I'm carnal, sold under sin. For what I'm doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate that I do. If then I do what I would not, I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that goes in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. But will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do, but the evil I will not do that I practice. Now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I think this is the section of the Bible that is the most eyes 
I am doing, I do not. For what I will, I hate. If then I do what I will, <laughs> I, 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 I. And you see, there's no hope for the I. Right? It's I, I. Every time there is a lot of eyes, it means trouble. Nothing good is going to come out of that. That's the conclusion. The good news always comes when there are no more eyes and there's just Jesus. Okay. For titles, we have three that are related. Number one, the law cannot serve from sin. The law cannot serve from sin. And number two, related to that, is the law does not stop sin. It cannot serve sin in making you righteous. Also, it cannot stop you from sinning. And number three, sin produces death through the law. Sin produces death through the law. Or you could say the power of sin is the law. That's what Paul says in First Corinthians 15. We have a wonderful message. If the Lord would grant me ability to speak it, it is a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful message. I'm going to encourage people to go back and re-listen to the messages that we have shared already in Romans 7 and even this one. Three, four, five times re-listening is very profitable because then you go beyond just being edified to owning the understanding. The reason why I'm preaching it is so that you own it. It becomes part of what you know about your own salvation. That's the point. So Apostle Paul has said the redeemed is free from the law. And that is a very strange statement to make. But how is that possible? He said in the opening of Romans 7, because they died to the law through the death of Christ Jesus. And Paul drew from the understanding of the law of marriage and couched his argument on the relation of the married woman to her husband. He said the woman remains under the law of her husband as long as he lives. As long as the husband lives, she remains under the law of her husband. But while he is alive, if she should adventure and be married to another, then that brings her a lot of trouble. She would be called an adulteress and under the law would be worthy of death because that's what the law says should be done because her going away to the next man was not according to the principles of the law of marriage in the matter of the dissolution of it. You see, there has to be dissolution of marriage that is according to law. However, if the husband happened to die, then 
In this instance, she could freely go and be married to another in a way that was consistent with the prescription of the law and she would be called righteous. She would be called, she would be called righteous. So death was one of the ways or is one of the ways by which a covenant is ended the matter of marriage, and the other one was the divorce certificate, which we talked about in the previous, or the other previous message, the certificate of divorce. So those would be the two legal ways to end the marriage. And Paul then concludes and says, the redeemed have legally been made to die to the law as a husband by the death of Christ, so that they may be righteously, legally be married to him who lives forever. And they are already married to Christ because his death cancelled their marriage to the law. His death cancelled their marriage to the law. How do you know that you are not under the law? It's because Jesus died. That's your answer. There's no other reason. It's because Jesus died. They have been set free from the law, justified in a very righteous way. Their marriage to Christ is legitimate. That's what Paul is arguing. He is saying, because of the way that you were set free from the law, Your marriage to Christ is legitimate. Okay? And none can challenge it in any court of law anywhere. Not here on earth and not even in heaven. And that means the marriage of the church to Christ cannot be annulled. It cannot be cancelled. It cannot be set aside by you and your sin, your unfaithfulness. Not by anything because your sinning was not the condition of remaining in this new marriage. That was not the condition. Your entrance into this marriage was unconditional on you and I doing anything. It was not conditional on us doing anything. And thus, There's nothing that we can do to get out. Because there's no condition that we meet to get in on our part. And there's no condition that we meet to stay in. The conditions were met by Christ alone. It was conditional on Christ dying. And for us, it is a marriage that happened because of grace alone. And that is a very incredible statement to make, especially in the ears of someone who was raised under the law and heavily invested in it. Remember, Paul is a Jew and he has in his audience a number of Jewish believers, people, and he's making these arguments about the law. 
And many say the law is eternal. You're going to hear that argument, and thus is always binding. But Paul comes and says, no, you are dead to it. That's a very strange thing to say to something that someone claims is eternal. You can't be alive and answerable to that which you died to. Also to the argument that the law is eternal. God was never under the Ten Commandments. <laughs> God was never under the Ten Commandments. The only time that God came under the Ten Commandments was with what Paul said in Galatians 5. In the fullness of time, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Because before he was not under the law, he had to take up human flesh that he may be under the law, that he may redeem those who are under the law. So God has never been from eternity under the law. So God's purpose was to separate his people from the law's condemnation through death. Not their death. Not our death. Just dying does not separate you from God's condemnation. It has to be a particular death. It has to be a death that has value. A death that has merit. A death that actually does something. That pays for something. The death of Christ. So Christ dying in the place of all the elect of all time and all the elect dying in and with him is what set them free from their marriage. And remember union and representation. Union and representation, these are words that have to be central to your reasoning and thinking around gospel issues. Those are hallmarks of the gospel transaction, that when Christ showed up, we were united with him, even in his death and resurrection, we are united with him, even seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We were first united to Christ through election, chosen in Christ from before the foundation of the world. So that's where our union with him began. So when you are following the matter of the gospel, you follow Christ. Don't follow yourself. Follow Christ, then you have a very good resolution of all your issues. <laughs> you follow yourself, you're going to be in serious trouble. Also, there is no imputation of sin to Christ or righteousness to you or anyone apart from union and representation. You have to have union and representation for there to be imputation. Okay? And that is to say, the death of Christ was the only event that achieved this separation from the law. And this was necessary if there would be salvation for anyone. You needed to be separated 
from the law. Because as long as one remains married to the law, they will collect all that the law as a husband gives them. The law as a husband has a package and it has a pension for all that remains or remain married to it or to all who remain married to it. The law has something to give. As a husband, it has a pension. It has a package. And the package is not good. As many suppose, for lack of understanding, the law will excoriate you for unrighteousness. For every pimple and blemish. Remember, even when the sacrifices had to be given, they had to be in, inspected for blemishes. Right? And if it had any blemish under the law, it was not accepted. So that's what the law does. It inspects you for blemishes. Every little one. And then it rejects you. It doesn't help to solve any of your blemish issues. It does not. It just comes to see if you have any blemishes or not. And if it finds any blemishes, it brings death. It will shut you out. Because the wages, the payout, the pension of sin is death. Paul says, the law bears and grieves fruit unto death. That's what it does. That's what it was given to do. And death here is more than a physical death. The law was not just a ministry of death. It was also the ministry of death and condemnation. We have the Secretary of Education. The Secretary of Education's business is not to defend the homeland. They don't deal with defense. They do not deal with money. They deal with education. That's what their ministry is about. It's in service to educating people. The law's ministry was in service to killing people. <laughs> okay? That's why it's called the ministry of death and condemnation. And from these, you needed someone to move you out from. You needed more than a professional mover. I saw a big two men in a truck pass by yesterday as I was sitting outside. That's not the kind of moving that you need. You cannot hire your own either. You can't go and hire your own U-Haul truck, like many people think, to move, to relocate yourself from death to life, from condemnation to justification. There's a relocation that has to happen. Christ Jesus is the man who was appointed to relocate you. Christ Jesus is he who was 
appointed of God, qualified of God to do your relocation from sin and death to life. John 5.24 Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but has passed out of death into life. See the relocation? You've passed from death, that's one place of existence, to life because of him. So the law was given to bear fruit and to condemnation. And do not let anyone spin you into any other understanding because of their religious zeal. It is part of the law's job description for you to bear fruit unto death. So to help us understand these things, we have to group them in this way. And Know these categories in your reading and thinking about things. Salvation. Sin, the law, Moses, Mount Sinai, Adam, old creation, the flesh, Hagar. They bring the same result. I'll repeat that again. Sin, law, Moses, Mount Sinai, Adam, the old creation, the flesh, Hagar, they bring the same result. Death and condemnation. Death and condemnation, they share the same address, the same zip code. They are in the same WhatsApp group. That is what they were given to do for you or to you as a sinner and nothing more. And one must find a way out of this. One must find a way out of this. And that way is not found of men and women. We need to find a way, but we can't find a way. We don't even know or we didn't even know that we needed to find a way. The way has to be revealed. It is a God-given way. It is the Christ Jesus way. It is not a way that we are able to choose even. Even if it was presented to us, we could not choose it. See how many people are still unbelievers even when they hear the gospel. They are not able to choose the way. It is a way that we are led to by God himself. A way that is imposed on us and then shown to us to follow Christ. This is the conversation in John 14, 3 to 6. By the Lord Jesus. John 14, 3 to 6. The Lord said, If I go 
he's talking about going back to the father and saying, in my father's house, there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would not have told you. But if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? Thomas is looking for some physical address. He is looking for Jesus to give him some interstate highway to follow. Get on 71 South. <laughs> he is thinking, I may need to update my Google Maps so that I may make it to heaven, to where Christ is. Jesus is speaking at a spiritual level. Thomas is thinking at the physical, fleshly level. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, the way is staring at you. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one, no one, no one, Oprah, no one comes to the Father but through me. There's no other way to come to the Father apart from Christ. And Jesus is serious. Jesus is very narrow-minded in a very positive way, in a very good way. He's just telling you the truth. That there's no other way to come to him, to the Father, except by him. So you know the way out of darkness. You know the way out of condemnation. You know the way out of a bad marriage to the law. It is Christ Jesus. That's the way. And it doesn't matter where you are. You are always on the Jesus highway. It doesn't matter what sickness you have. It doesn't matter how you die. It doesn't matter what issues you have in your life. You are always on the Jesus highway. So Jesus must appear to make an end of all these things on certain people, the elect that were given him by the Father, and he alone has the power to translate a sinner from Adam to himself. He has the power, he has the legal right from God to do that translation, to move you from one place to the next. Translate a sinner from death to life. Because you have to have life in yourself to move one from death to life. That is why Christ was he alone who raised people from the dead. Ultimately, it is he who raises. Even in the resurrection, it's Christ. The voice, those who, the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God. Right? and those who shall hear will rise. So Christ alone has the power to command life out of death as he did with Lazarus, but even more, 
from the death of condemnation to the life of righteousness. From darkness to light, let there be light. It was Jesus who was speaking because he is the word of God. Let there be light. And thus from condemnation to justification, it is he alone who has the power to pronounce that on anyone. And to say, as he said in John 15, you are clean by the word that I've spoken. You are clean. Like this Peter. Peter is clean. Like Peter clean. The Peter who is going to deny Jesus is clean. Jesus says, oh yeah, he's clean. He's clean. How? By the word that I have spoken, I have declared him to be a clean guy. So in the context of Christ and the gospel, we have another category, we have another group that you have to be able to separate from the first group. The second group is life. Is grace, is mercy, is the spirit, is the new covenant, is the new testament, is faith, is the new creation. It is justification. It is free. Free. Free is only for those who are in the second category. And if you want to extend it, Sarah is in that group. Isaac is in that group. That's the second category. That's where we belong. So these are different houses. And you don't get to eat in any house that has its door open. You don't do that. When we're growing up, we're not allowed to just go and eat anywhere. <laughs> okay? You just could not go. Yes, you can go play, but you could not eat there. <laughs> so the children of God, they only eat from the house of the New Testament. But the translation that we needed from death to life did not happen by him just showing up. Jesus needed more than just showing up because he had showed up many, many times in the Old Testament. He had to give what was required for that translation to happen. He had work to do. There was a, pr a price to pay for that translation to happen. He had to pay a redemption price, a ransom price, for that upgrade to happen, we needed an upgrade. If you must fly first class, you must pay the ticket. So Christ must die. His blood was and is your ticket upgrade from Adam. That's how you got out of Adam. It was his blood that took you from the bottom of the ship <laughs> to the top. So the death of Christ was the clause that God put in for the end of your condemnation. And let's explain something. Legal condemnation does not mean that the elect were not loved of God 
And it does not mean that they were destined to God's wrath. It was always God's good pleasure to save us. He always intended our salvation. But we had to go through the legal condemnation. We were on the wrong side of the law. And when you get on the wrong side of the law, you always get in trouble. That's the point. So there has to be a legal condemnation if God is as righteous and holy as he is. So we owed satisfaction of our sin to him, to his justice. His justice cannot be broken. It must be honored. It must be paid. It must be satisfied in a way that is agreeable to him. And that's why the Bible says, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission. There's no canceling of sin. Your sin cannot be canceled apart from the shedding of blood. Because that's what God's justice requires. It must be paid. Even if God loves you, you're not coming until the payment is made. Because he's defending his own honor. He has to defend his name. So he has to do this, and he has done it for the sake of his name. He says, for my name's sake, I'll do it. So in Leviticus 17, verse 11, this is what God says. Leviticus 17, 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you. I have given it to you. On the altar. To make atonement for your souls. Well, if you're giving me the life of the flesh, give me some grill, make me guess barbecue, make some wonderful steaks. That's what would make sense to Sister Shalini. <laughs> get her some T-bone steak. That makes more sense. But God says, I have given it to you on the altar, as a place of sacrifice, to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. The blood by the reason of the life of Christ that makes atonement. Why did God make that qualification of saying by reason of life? Because Adam had no life in himself. Moses had no life in himself. Bulls and gods have no life in themselves to give. The law has no life. You and I have no life to give. Even if we were put on the altar, we could not make atonement for ourselves. It's only the life of Christ in his flesh that was put on the altar to make atonement for ourselves. So the legal condemnation must be satisfied for all the elect in a way that honors God's righteousness. And now being in Christ, one bears fruit unto God. And as we have noted in the previous messages, bearing fruit 
to God in this context, at this level of the conversation, is not progressing in righteousness. It is not doing good works. You do not progress in righteousness. You are either righteous or not. Righteousness is a zero or one game. It's zero or 100%. You are not 99% righteous. You are either righteous or you are not righteous. There's no amount of good works that can set you free from the condemnation of the law. So the fruit that is being talked about is the fruit of having died and resurrected with Christ and possessing the life of Christ. That is the fruit that we bear to God. It is the life of Christ that is the fruit. That is the fruit that is acceptable to God. So all the redeemed bear fruit to God, all of them, by reason of God having accepted them in Christ, accepted in the beloved, having accepted the work of Christ on their behalf. But all this stuff that Paul said was going against the natural understanding of many who had grown under the law, they would come and fill their mouths with many arguments as many still do today and say, but that cannot be right. How is it that the law works with sin to bring death? How is it that the law is not needed for salvation? Was not the law supposed to bring life and to make sinners better? How can that which is eternal be set aside? The moral law, how could that be set aside? What are people going to do? That is madness. That's antinomianism. So that would be the charge against Paul. And that's why he had to labor to teach in Romans 7 by the Holy Spirit. If the law is doing all these things, then the logical conclusion has to be that the law is sin. Because they are saying sin kills, the law kills, so the law is sin. So they would have flipped to the other extreme. Now they have to discredit the law if this is true and call it sin. But Paul said, well, may it never be. The law cannot be sin. You do not understand both sin and law and how they relate and work together to do what they do. You do not get it. You were already sinners. And Paul then uses himself as exhibit A of this relationship between law and sin and the end of it. He said, I would not have known sin 
for what it is, I would not have known covetousness. The tenth commandment, the moral law, as an example, unless the law had come and said, thou shalt not covet, apparently it seems by this that I've always been a coveter. I just did not know it. I've always been admiring other people's handbags. Nicely done hair and nails. Admired the car, the dress. Maybe if it were mine, I'd just change the color a little bit. <laughs> change the color. And I thought, if only I could get one just like that for me, just for me, for my birthday. I could experience the better me. After all, I thought these were innocent, harmless, and genuine feelings and thoughts. Just maybe me appreciating beauty. But Paul says no. Sin took advantage of the commandment not to covet and produce in me all kinds of evil desire. So that one commandment opened the floodgates for me to not just covet, but to sin the more in every way possible, even in ways that I had not even imagined. Sin took advantage of the opening that the commandment gave. And it could not be restrained by the commandment. And it doesn't matter what commandment you want to pull, as people who say, people tend to cherry pick commandments that they think they are doing. Thou shalt not kill, or thou shalt not bear false witness. Yeah? The result is the same. Evil desire. Not righteousness is the result. Because you would expect that Paul would have said, I became righteous by the law. No, he discovered a different experience and testimony. More evil desire. And once you say, thou shalt not to a sinner, you are already on a sinner-killing spree. Yeah? Yeah. I have my girls here. Be at home by 7 at 9 o'clock p.m. Then I'll be like, ah, I want to go see my friend. <laughs> and this was a surprising result to Paul. Because you would have naturally expected that this would have made him a better person. Would have tamed all the crazy affections that he had, or even was discovering. No, it did the very opposite, evil desire continually. So the commandment did what? It discovered the sin that was lying dormant in him, and that to say, the law was given for discovery and exposing of sin. That's the function of the law. 
discover that which is lying dormant. The law caused sin to erupt like a volcano, causing a mushroom cloud of ash, of sin and, if, and its effects. And that's what happened with Adam. Just one sin caused all these issues that we have now. And that is a matter that is very clear to me as, as a chemist. Because we make things and we have to identify them, see if this is exactly what I needed to make. And with some products, we use all kinds of lights to things that are, to show things, to expose things that are hidden from the naked eye. But once you bring the light, usually ultraviolet light, what was seemingly hidden from my naked eyes begins to shine brightly. I can see it. So the law causes sin to shine brightly. And brightly here is being used in a discovery way and in a negative way not as in glorying in sin, as some may misconstrue our arguments. The law is there to bring the light so that it may expose that which is hidden to you and me. And Paul said, apart from the law, sin was dead. Sin is dead. If I turn off the light, I do not see anything wrong. <laughs> in other words, if I do not give a commandment for you to do something that I know you cannot do and attach life and death to the doing or not doing of that command, then sin is dead in that respect. There's no commandment to do or to break. You cannot be made guilty of something that the law does not forbid to be done, even though you are doing it. If there's no law that has been given against anything, then you can be condemned for anything because it did not break anything. So a law must be given first before one can be criminalized of any act. And that's what Congress will do. They will say, okay, we have been seeing a lot of these things happening. Now it's time to pass some legislation so that we can send people to jail. But apart from the legislation, they cannot apprehend anyone. They cannot prosecute anyone. And that is why God gave Adam the command not to eat from the tree and attached death to it. But as soon as I come and I give a commandment, you quickly learn that you are so condemned because you only need to break the commandment one time to be condemned. You do not need to break the commandment two times or three times. There's no second chance when it comes to the matter of the law given how it is. 
it demands perfection. So once you break it one time, you don't have 100%. Okay? Many people think that if they can break the law as little as possible, then they are righteous. Now, if you miss one point, James says in James 2.10, you are guilty of the whole law, you are condemned by the whole law forever. But I will illustrate this point this way. And I've given this example many times before, and I've added a little more details to it. And I call this example the James Guyo law of blinking your eyes. What do you do with blinking your eyes? Is there something that you actively cause or think about and say, I think I'm going to blink my eyes in the next two minutes. I'll blink for 15 times, then I'll stop. Is that something that you actively control? The answer is no. That is a reflex action. It is something that you do naturally without even thinking, even in your sleep, according to the nature of being. And thankfully, you cannot lick your own eyes like I've seen with some geckos and some animals do. They have these long tongues. We see them licking their eyes. I'm like, no, don't do that. <laughs> I just had to throw that one for free. Since you love free things, right? Now, there's been given you a law that says blinking is sin. Blinking is sin. And I'm going to introduce to you the James Gill law of death and condemnation and I'll tie to it, you're not blinking. I am going to say, everyone, here and now, stop blinking your eyes for the next 10 minutes. If you can, you live forever. But if you cannot, you are condemned also forever. Just a simple thing. You don't have to go anywhere. You don't need to go to a nightclub. You don't need to go do anything crazy. I've attached life and death to your ability or lack of ability to stop blinking in the next 10 minutes. That's simple. Seemingly simple. How many people will leave? None. Zero. All will be condemned. Why? Because they cannot stop blinking. Why can they not stop blinking? Because that is natural to them, to their nature of being. That's who you are. You must blink. But see what I did. I attached life eternal life and death to something that you cannot do. I attached a law that would condemn you all the time, condemn you to death, if you ever blinked the 10 minutes. 
If you ever blinked one time, that's enough. You're out. So, now to the reason of the giving of the James Guillaume. It was not given to give you ability to stop blinking. It has no power in it to stop you from blinking. But to prove to you that you cannot stop blinking. And so the law of God was given not to stop you from coveting. Not to stop you from sinning. But to show you that you are naturally a sinner, a coveter, and that there's nothing that you can do to stop it. And just not that. But to get you condemned for something that you have no power to stop. And also for something that the law has no power to give you to do. And someone will argue and say, if this is true, why then does he still find fault? If he did not give me the power to control my own blinking, give me ability to obey. God says, you go and read Romans 9. I've answered that for you. Who are you anyway? Who are you to talk back to God? You are just clay. I'm the porter. I have the freedom to do Whatever pleases me. So the law has not given power to stop you from coveting or to stop you from sinning. But to show us that we are naturally covetous and that there's a sentence that comes because of that. And it's condemnation. You are condemned for it. And that is the rightful use of the law for us to know that the law was not for our salvation, but to expose that which is in us. For us to know that there's no power in ourselves to save ourselves, and there's no power from the law to help us get saved. So Paul say in verse 9 of Romans 7, I once was alive apart from the law, but with the coming of the commandment, sin became alive and I died. So Paul thought himself alive apart from the law. He felt righteous in himself. He felt confident towards God, judging things by himself. And I believe Paul was feeling righteous apart from regeneration. Because before his regeneration to faith in Christ, he thought himself blameless before the law. That's his own testimony in Philippians 3. Verse 6, he says, the righteousness according to the law, I was blameless. So regeneration, God coming and making him spiritually alive, brought him a proper understanding of righteousness, a proper understanding of what the law was actually saying, and a proper understanding of himself. And when the proper understanding of the law was made clear to him, 
he saw his sin becoming alive. And he said, I died. In other words, I just felt condemned. (laughs) And that would be the basis of him saying now, in Philippians 3, I call my righteousness before the law, lost and done. Initially, I thought it was blameless, but now it's lost and done. Because I get it. I understand it. I was using the law wrongly. So Paul felt alive apart from the law coming and messing up his cheese. And you too. We're feeling alive until I introduced you to the James Gill law of blinking. You did not ever think that could bring condemnation if I were to attach life and death to it. But that is just an example. But a true witness to the truth of Christ. But with the coming of the commandment, Paul said, sin revived. And you discovered consciously now that you could not stop blinking. You never really think about blinking that way. But now that the law has been given, you are consciously thinking about it. And every time you blink, I'm condemned. I'm so condemned. But you can't say, I'm good. I only blinked halfway. I only licked my eyes. I sinned just a little. Because the law says a little yeast leavens the whole lump. So the law makes sin alive and then brings death to anyone and everyone who is not 100% obeying what the commandment is saying. And so to those who claim to be law keepers for sanctification, how are you being sanctified by that which brings death and gives no power? For you to obey. And I'm going to say good luck to you. We'll see you on the other side by God's grace. Paul's conclusion. With respect to his experience with the law was this. Verse 10. So I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life brought death. The very law that many think or claim commands them to God. Helps them to be holy and righteous. Paul said, I found the very opposite. It brought death to me. It brought hopelessness to me. And I'm sure you've seen these people who have their faces covered to their eyes. They think that they can stop the condemnation of the law because of their sin. The sin in them. And we have to make a distinction. Public decency is not righteousness. Not in the matter of Christ. Though it is highly encouraged. The law only discovers that which is there. So their covering of the faces and to the toes, 
is actually in agreement with God that they are under the condemnation of the law. These are just the modern versions of the fig leaves. That's the truth of it. Just the modern version of the old fig leaves. They know that they're sinners. And they're trying to cover it by something that they do. And every day they wake up, they have to remember to cover their faces. Okay? But the sin remains. It's in there in them. Verse 11, Romans 7, For sin, seizing the opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it I die. I died. Sin took occasion. It took advantage through the commandment to not covet, to not lie, to not steal, to not look, to not touch, to not think this thing and that thing. One time in 2008, Ella and I were fasting. <laughs> and it was a Friday. I took the girls to get some groceries in the late afternoon. I got them some Doritos. It was by the mall, by the Dayton Mall. There's a mire down there by the Dayton Mall. So I got the girls some Doritos and I was pushing the cart. And my fast had not yet ended as it had been prescribed to me by some stupid book that I was reading. <laughs> it was supposed to end at 6 p.m. But I had opened the Doritos bag for the girls to eat. And I accidentally took some Doritos. Because I could not resist them. I took a bite. And guess what happened? I've never felt so condemned. This is a true story. It could go out. I never felt so condemned. But the girls felt nothing about it. And they didn't care. Both they were not under that law. <laughs> I felt so self-condemned because I should not have eaten the Doritos or anything for that matter before I broke my fast. I felt condemned because I had invested some righteousness into it. And now I saw that righteousness being toppled to the ground by a bag of Doritos. <laughs> but this is what I read from the experts on fasting, who obviously were ignorant of the gospel. And my whole weekend was ruined by those Doritos. Because I felt unfaithful. Because I was taking it seriously. I really felt unfaithful and condemned because I ate from the bag of Doritos. So what happened? Sin had taken advantage. It was seizing the opportunity, took occasion through the fasting commandment to not eat anything until 6 p.m. So sin deceived me. 
And Paul said, through the commandment, sin deceived me through the commandment. So there always has to be a commandment that sin takes advantage of to kill you. And I died. And that means sin and law work together, and they always work together to produce a particular result, and that result is death. And that is saying sin plus law is always equal to death because the power of sin is in the law. And you too have your own many little fasting commandments, some commandments that you give yourself to establish some righteousness, especially in this gluten-free world. Those seemingly innocent commandments will minister death to you because of sin. Because at some point, sin will deceive you. And you yield to it. And you break the commandment, it does not matter what commandment. Let me help someone by way of reminder and exhortation. God has determined in himself to honor only one covenant that he made with Christ Jesus. All the other commandments, sorry, all the other covenants that we may make with him do not have the blood of Christ and so they will not work they will result in our disappointment. And so the Bible says, keep looking unto Jesus. Keep looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of faith. And the Psalms will say, I will lift up my eyes to the hills. From whence cometh, cometh my help? Looking to Christ. So what is the conclusion when it comes to the law? Is the law sin? Paul says, verse 12, no, it's not. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. The law is indeed holy, it's just and good. The problem is not the law, it is sin that is in us. Especially when sin is mixed with law. You mix sin with law, you have trouble. But the argument does not end here just yet. Paul continues and says, Romans 7, 13. Has then what is good become death to me? And that is a good question. Because he has established that the law is good. But has it, by its goodness, become death to me? How can something that is good cause death to me or anyone? You would have thought that things good should bring good, should bring life. Paul says, certainly not, but sin. That it might appear sin was producing death in me through what is good. 
seeing that it may appear sin to me and to you and to anyone to be discovered as such, to be felt and understood and its consequences had to be exposed by producing death through what is good, which is the law. And that is really some incredible way of connecting the theological pieces. And this, I believe, is what is lacking in much of the teaching that you find in the professing church. There's just a lot of gimmickry. The teaching is too much watered down. It hardly passes for the word of God. So Paul says death is what proves the sinfulness of sin. But through the judgment and condemnation of the law. And again, I'm going to revisit my profession, chemistry. This is something that is easy for me to understand. In chemistry, we have certain compounds, chemicals, materials that you can't or that you cannot confirm their identity unless you mix them with some other special spray. You have to spray some other chemical. When you do that, they will react. And if you give them a little bit of heat, they'll form a very nice, distinct color that will definitively and positively identify the product that you have. You bring that other spray, it forms a nice color and positive identity. And God is saying the law is what brings when mixed with sin. It gives sin its proper identification. And the ultimate identification of the presence of sin is by the law producing death. So death is the ultimate diagnosis by the law also as it is the sentence that you and I are sinners. And that's God's point with the law. And Paul continued and said, Verse 18 to, I think, second part. So that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. So sin through the commandment to not covet might become exceedingly sinful. And that to say, the law was given to amplify sin. You're going to love this. The law is not a shock absorber on the bumpy roads of sin. It does the very opposite. It makes the ride very bumpy. Like your car has no shock absorbers. And Paul says, the law is like an amplifier of sound. 
An amplifier makes very low signals, barely audible. Signals to be audible or even to be very loud. You turn on the volume and then everybody can hear it. So the law was given to turn on the volume of your sin. It was given to amplify all those signals of sin that seemed not to be there. Because if the volume is too low, you can barely hear anything. You're thinking, oh, there's nothing here until someone comes and cranks up the volume. That's what the law was given to do, to amplify all those low-lying signals of sin that they may be known by you. And that means these signals are in everyone. They just need to be amplified. And so those who think they're sinning less and less are just not having their sin signals amplified to their level of consciousness. And on that I'll say, because of what Paul just said, there's nothing sinful that you and I are incapable of doing. If God brings the amplifier, you'll be surprised by what you're able to do. And that is say, Do not be surprised by what anyone or yourself can do in respect of sin. It just needs an amplifier to be brought to the fore. And sometimes God brings and amplifies those sins that you thought you had overcome. You had some sin 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago. And you thought, oh, it's gone. God brings back the amplifier. And as John Owen said in his book, Overcoming Sin and Temptation, don't read Owen, by the way. It's going to make you, especially in this book, it will make you feel unsaved. <laughs> but, he has a good point on this. He made some remarkable statement. He said, God will resurrect an old sin. A sin that he thought had died. That he may slay a new one. Usually pride. When God thinks of being very prideful, he will resurrect some old seemingly dead sin that he may bring you back to your knees again. That you may Continually look to Christ alone. Okay? Verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sword, and a sin. The law is spiritual. And I believe it means it is not of the nature of man and is not agreeable with our nature. And the contrast is that men and women are carnal, so that's the distinction. We are flesh sold under sin, sold to sin. And you belong to that which bought you. Sold to sin is language to say, naturally you are under the command of the one who bought you. And by being sold to something or to someone, you have no power or rights to redeem yourself from that situation. This is incredibly 
important language that Paul is saying because he's developing a very strong argument that naturally you are sold to a power that you have no ability to redeem yourself. That's why he purposefully says you will sold to sin. So Paul says, I am carnal, sold under sin by nature. And the law by its nature demands from me that which I cannot give it. Given that we are not of the same construction. The law is spiritual and I am not. And that is creating a lot of issues for me. So how does that play out in this matter of sin, law and death? How does this play out in my experience of this reality? So Paul begins to apply the reality of being powerless under this power that is sin, that is his flesh. He says, verse 15, For what I'm doing, I do not understand. What I am doing, I do not get it. Why is that so? What is the source of the confusion and seeming contradiction? He says, for what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. For what I will to do, I have things that I set out to do. I think I plan and I commit myself to do certain things. I really will to do these things. Very good and righteous things. That's the context. He wills to do very wonderful, righteous, holy things, but something always happens that which I will to do that I do not practice. Okay. So there is a disconnect between what I will to do and how that plays out in my life. Something seems to be overpowering me and messing up my very good and best intentions and mind. I genuinely will well-doing, but I am failing miserably in practice. I do not practice what I preach to myself to do. But that does not leave me in a neutral position. Actually, I still find myself doing things. Things that I did not will to do. Things that I did not even plan to do. I planned this to do. I do not do that. But I end up doing the very things that I never intended to do. I find myself doing things that I hate. The very things that I vowed not to do, not to repeat last week, last month, last year. I said I will never do that again. I will never do that sin ever again. It almost destroyed me. Never say that again. Never talk to that person again. Never see that person again. But I do. Here and now, the very things that I hate. 
And here and now, even in the present continuous tense, I am doing these things that I hate things contrary to righteousness. And Paul is not saying, I will to have chicken wings over hamburgers for dinner, but I always find myself ordering McDonald's and pizza. No, he's talking about righteousness and the gap that he sees between what good things he wills and the result of his experience and practice of them. So Paul is giving a performance evaluation of himself against the law. And it is a very bad evaluation because the performance gap is really massive. So if this is the result, verse 16, Paul says, If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. So if I do what I will not to do, then I agree that the law is good. There's nothing wrong with the law. The problem is with me. So this experience with the law vindicates the law and its claims of goodness and its judgment of my ability or inability to keep it. This vindicates the law as righteous. That the law itself is good. But it is my failure to do the good that I will to do in spite of my best intentions that is the real problem. So what then is happening if that is the case? What is the diagnosis? Who is the culprit? What is getting in the way of Paul's otherwise good intentions? Verse 17. But now, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that was in me. But now, it is no longer I who is causing all this trouble for myself. I have demonstrated I've demonstrated that my mind really wills that which is good. I have even committed to do that which is good and righteous. But I have miserably failed over and over. So what is the power that is stopping me from aligning myself with what I will to practice. Paul says, there's another principle that dwells in me. And this principle is part of me. It is part of my fabric, part of my being. It is sin that dwells in me. And the sin is alive and it has influence It has power and it has connections. It has a dwelling place. It is at home in me. That's where it lives. It is not somewhere out there. It is in me. 
and it is working against all that which is good that I will to do. And Paul by saying, it is no longer I who do it, he was not saying he was not responsible for his sin. No, he was dissecting things to their atomic level so that he may get down to the very thing, to the very cause of his trouble. Giving a proper diagnosis of the disease. He's not looking at the symptoms. He wants to go to the real issue. Okay? Paul is saying, my experience is not because of poor education. It is not because of growing in a bad neighborhood. It is not because of being poor or because of bad parenting. He says there is something deeper and greater that does not respect my education, that does not respect my upbringing or neighborhood. It is something that is intrinsic to the nature of my person. Indwelling sin is what is working all these tricks, causing spiritual disease in me, unrighteousness and death. And it has its own mind and principles that are opposed to righteousness and opposed to what the law says. Verse 18. Paul says, for I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. So his conclusion, with regards to his own person, was, I know. I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. I know everyone born of God should say the same. I know that in my flesh nothing good dwells. So who is it who dwells in the flesh because it is not vacant? It is sin, indwelling sin. But hear this. The Holy Spirit is in Paul. That is the only way he can give this testimony. The Holy Spirit is in every believer, but he is not in the flesh. He is not a minister to the flesh or a minister in the flesh. Because in the flesh, nothing good dwells. The Holy Spirit is good. And many people do not know that there is nothing good that dwells in their flesh. But pay attention to what Paul said and did not say. Paul did not say, there's nothing good that dwells in me. He said, there's nothing good that dwells in my flesh. Because in him, there's something good that dwells, and that is the Holy Spirit. Christ through the Holy Spirit. But in his particular flesh, nothing good. So pay attention to the distinction. 
For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. Paul says the willing is present, so I cannot attribute my problems of sin and poor performance before the law for lack of will or motivation. Far from it. I have the motivation. I have the will. But the problem comes when it is time for me to perform that which I have willed. And that you say, understanding this, I cannot, and we cannot, defending you to work harder. We cannot work harder. Because that will not help the problem. Given how Paul has presented its nature and how deep-seated the problem is, the cure is not to work harder. Because there's something that is lacking. It is how to perform what is good. And that is speaking to power. Paul is saying, I am lacking the power to overcome that which has overtaken me. That I may perform all that good that I've willed. Power not to do some things of the law to some acceptable standard that we have given ourselves, but to give the law the perfect obedience that it requires and demands and so completely subdue the indwelling sin. For some claim, we have heard this many times, that the redeemed now have power in themselves to obey the law. This is very common teaching, reformed teaching, and that is not true. The Holy Spirit does not give us power to obey the law in the manner that Christ obeyed the law. Christ obeyed the law perfectly. This is what the Holy Spirit gives us power to do. He gives us power to repent and believe in the one who obeyed the law, and that is Christ Jesus. The flesh cannot be made to obey the law given the issues that are inherent in us as we stand unglorified. We are not glorified. So as long as there is indwelling sin, we cannot give the law what the law requires. Okay? The flesh cannot be made better because that is the place where sin dwells. This body of the flesh has to be planted into the ground in corruption. That's First Corinthians 15. It's going to have to be planted in corruption and then it's going to be raised incorruptible. And then whatever you will to do, you're going to see that it will be aligned with your practice. Okay? So what is the result of that problem? Verse 19, we're ending at verse 20. 
For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not, I will not to do, that I practice. So that's the truth from every true child of grace. And it is not that they are opposed to righteousness. It is not that they hate the law. It is just they are telling the truth. They just find this reality in them. That despite their willingness to do right and good, to be obedient, evil is always present and it is very frustrating. It is like sweat on a very humid day. You can do well. You can shower. Get your roll on and perfume on. But as soon as you get outside, you're going to get sticky. It won't take time. You're going to go back, take another shower. Go back outside, you're going to get sticky. Okay. It doesn't care for your perfume. You're going to get sticky. As long as it is you. So the sin sticks like that. Verse 20, Paul says, Now if I do what I will, I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So Paul's point again is to isolate this thing called sin and its power. It's called sin and it is it is power and it is opposed to all things good and it works with the law to produce this apparent conundrum, this hopelessness, this trap from which you need to be delivered somehow. Because you cannot die in that state without having resolved the matter. There has to be someone who brings an end to this. Someone who brings an end to the sin and also to the law and to the death that it brings. That person must be found who is able to take care of those three things for you. Take care of the sin, right? Just be imputed to him. To the law, he has to honor it perfectly. And to the death, he overcomes it by the resurrection. That's the solution to the conundrum. But Paul is building it up so that the solution becomes very obvious. That this is the only way out. There's no other way. Okay? So, the conclusion. This is what has been argued. There's more to sin and law than what meets the eye. As they say, the silent river runs deep. That's sin. Seemingly silent, but it runs deep. You're going to drown. And many people, professing church people, do not understand law and its purpose 
God-given purpose and how God has taught the matter. They are very quick to brush the arguments aside. They do not want to deal with the arguments as God has presented them. So they end up telling a lie. They have thought to use the law for their own righteousness, for their own recommendation to God. They do not understand the depth to which they are sinners. Been deceived by sin to think they are good people who can give the law something. We are not able to give the law anything. We are sinners by nature of being. That's our construction. As God is righteous by nature of being. As God is life in himself by nature of being. Not because of do's and don'ts. The do's and don'ts that come through the law, they help to manifest the sin that was hidden, but they do not improve the sinner. So the law was given to discover that which was hidden, to expose it, amplify it, and to bring condemnation, bearing fruit unto death. Paul calls the law the letter that kills. It is the letter that kills. But the law is holy, <laughs> is righteous, and the commandment is good, but is of no help to a sinner because of the sin that dwells, the sin that deceives. There is nothing good in the flesh that could help the law, even help you and me as sinners. So the law, contrary to what many people say, does the very opposite. It is not for righteousness and is not for sanctification. It is for the bringing of death and for the amplification of sins hidden that they may be brought to view for God's righteous judgment of them. And God comes and says, this is what you have died to in the death of Christ. You've died to all these issues in the death of Christ. That's why you don't want to be married to Moses. You have a much better way to relate and to approach God. You've been married to another. You've been married to Christ. You've been set free in Christ. See the language of being set free because when you are under sin and law, there's no freedom. You have been sold to sin and you are going through all these things of wanting to be this and trying to do that and still finding yourself doing the very opposite. So you need to be set free from that. Christ has come and he has translated us from that to life, real life. Okay? The law is not for righteousness. We are done. Amen. Let us pray.
Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for these many wonderful, wonderful things that you have taught us through the testimony of Apostle Paul about the nature of sin and how deep-seated it is in us, in our flesh, and what it does working with the law to produce not life, but death. We thank you for opening these things that are hidden to many, because many still think that they could approach you by the doing of the law, by their own righteousness, which thing we know to be impossible for us now. We thank you for the Christ who came and died, that we may die to all these things and be made the new creation in him. We honor you for all who listened. We pray that they got away with something and that you bring them back to continue to hear the testimony of Christ. We honor you, glorify you. Amen. Good people, remember the law of blinking your eyes. Don't go back to Moses. The James Girl law will condemn you. Ha, 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 ha.